0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we take a critical look at human rights. My guest is Rada D'Souza. She has a new book entitled What's Wrong with Rights Social Movements, Law, and Liberal Imaginations. In our conversation, we discuss why there has been a proliferation of human rights since the end of World War II, and how these rights have actually furthered the interests of the transnational capitalist class.
1: After World Wars, we find that capitalism changed in its fundamental character. It became transnational, it became monopolistic, it became finance-driven. And these kind of expansion of capitalism an intensification of capitalism required a proliferation of new types of rights. And that is why we see all sorts of new rights. Most of them are international in character, and most of them are rights that actually meet the needs of transnational monopoly finance capitalism.
0: Rada also discusses education as a human right and the challenge it has for social movements and unions like Education International.
1: Organizations like this union that you referred to, Education International, when they demand human rights, they're only thinking about what we want from rights. But what I say is, you should also question why they want rights. Why does the education industry want rights? And when we start to ask why they want rights, then we start to see the connection between property rights and human rights.
0: Rada D'Souza teaches law at the University of Westminster, London. Rada D'Souza, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Thank you, Will, for having me on this program. I'm delighted to be here today.
0: So how are human rights commonly understood today?
1: Commonly... People, when they speak about human rights, they have in mind a set of claims that they can make about certain basic needs for human life. For example, it could be uh, civil and political rights, right to fair trial, uh, right not to be tortured, and these kind of rights are called civil and political rights. Or there may be socioeconomic rights, rights to education, rights to health, rights to housing, those kind of rights. Or there could be cultural rights, rights of indigenous people and so on. But the key thing about rights in popular imaginations is that rights are universal, that every individual has them by virtue of being human. That is why they understand it as human rights.
0: And how many rights are there?
1: Well, when the United Nations was established at the end of World War II in 1945, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights enumerated about 28 rights. There was a list of 28 rights. Today, it is estimated that international law recognizes more than 300 rights. So human rights have proliferated phenomenally in the last 70 years.
0: Why? Why has there been a proliferation of human rights?
1: Well, we can see if we look at the history of rights that uh, the prefix human was added only after the so-called New World Order was established after World War II. Now, why does that order need this expansion of rights? Earlier, before the World Wars happened in the 19th century, 18th century, and so on, uh, rights were largely uh, confined to nation states. They were only available to citizens against states. But After World Wars, we find that capitalism changed in its fundamental character. It became transnational, it became monopolistic, it became finance-driven, and these kind of expansion of capitalism and intensification of capitalism required a proliferation of new types of rights. And that is why we see all sorts of new rights Most of them are international in character, and most of them are rights that actually meet the needs of transnational monopoly finance capitalism.
0: Could you give an example of of a right that meets the needs of transnational financial capitalism?
1: Okay, let's look at the proliferation of rights, the ways in which rights have proliferated, We have all sorts of rights now, you know, rights to surrogacy, rights to uh, land, indigenous people, including a right to happiness. Now, if you look at the UN General Assembly, uh, it adopted a resolution in July 2011 called Happiness, a Holistic Approach to Development. Now, you should—you might wonder what happiness has got to do with transnational monopoly finance capitalism, right? And can happiness be legislated at all? I mean, can people demand from the state a right to be happy in the same way as they can demand from the state a right not to be tortured, for example? But when we actually, and it may on the face of it sound a little strange that we have a right to happiness, which is now part of the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. But when we start looking behind these rights, we can see that there are a lot of uh, important organizations like EU commissioners, European Union commissioners, who are advocating for this right? The OECD, the Organization of Economic and uh, Development, is, uh, has published guidelines on measuring subjective well-being for national statistical offices, for the use of bureaucrats, etc. Who's driving this new right to happiness? On the one hand, we see large corporations are trying to de-unionize workers deny them collective bargaining rights, which they have always had. On the other hand, these very same corporations are also introducing what they call work-life balance programs. Now, these work-life balance programs have led to a large coaching industry, which has about 47,000 employees, and estimated to be around 2 billion US dollars a year. So, one of the things that uh, the right to happiness provides for people or underprivileged people in developed countries is the right to tourism. So, now you can straight away see the link between tourism industry and the right to happiness. Yeah, And similarly, you have... Uh, uh, in the social, uh, the economy, the uh, SDGs or the Sustainable Development Goals 2030. Now, these goals were established as successor to the Millennium Development Goals. Now, the Millennium Development Goals set, uh, they set out about eight goals to achieve uh, basic needs of people. So, the uh, goals like, for example, primary education, eradication of extreme poverty and hunger, universal uh, gender equality, uh, right, uh, the uh, goal to reduce child mortality, and so on. Now, these goals were, we know that it's questionable whether they have been achieved at all. But regardless... there was an eighth goal, which was to achieve global partnership. And this is the only goal in the Millennium Development Goal 2015 that was actually achieved because it was about establishing private public-private partnerships and induct global corporations, trust funds, private foundations, and so on into the very heart of UN's work. Now, following on from that, we need to ask, if, if the Millennium Development Goals were not achieved, why do we need Sustainable Development Goals? And why do Sustainable Development Goals 2030 include the right to happiness, right? And then you can see a whole lot of big players, for example, the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation's and so on, taking up many of these development projects, and how do they plan to deliver on it? They deliver on, now because poverty has not been eradicated, women are not not equal, there's no universal primary education yet, so instead of addressing those, now we have a new goal. Let's try and make people happy, because people can obviously be happy even without anything, right? because even slum children ha- are very happy when they have a uh, when they kick footballs on streets for example there is momentary happiness and it takes attention away from the fact that even if slum kids are happy playing football on the streets probably with a torn ball and and still feel happy maybe questions of edu- education housing health you know, don't really need to take uh, center stage or we don't need to give it as much importance as we have been doing so far. So it kind of deflects attention from all of those things. And I think that is really one of the problems. How does it deflect attention? Because the Sustainable Development Goals 2030 has led to this whole indicator industry, if we can call it that. How do we measure happiness? Mathematical uh, methods, uh, you know, with a complete array of methodologies, multiple disciplines, including psychology, religious studies, sociologists, development studies, all getting together to list a number of factors, which if they exist, we can say the person is happy. And that completely changes the meaning of happiness, and instead, those indicators become ways of measuring, you know, development and saying, okay, these kids in the slums are happy playing football. So maybe, you know, they are somewhat developed. And that completely skews the whole thing. And I think we've then, it takes us away from the reality that as human beings, we live in a community, whether we are rich or poor, and happiness is an attribute of being human and regardless of our social status or conditions we will always seek solidarity with other human beings and that will always bring us some level of happiness
0: so are you saying that the the human right to happiness um, that's embodied in the sustainable development goals actually furthers the interests of a transnational capitalist class
1: It does. It does in at several levels, because at the level of uh, poverty and all those basic needs, as I've just said, there is no need to deliver on them. So there is no need to feel guilty because rich people are also unhappy, poor people are unhappy, rich people are, you know, happy sometimes. So there is no need to give it the kind of primacy that we have given it all these years. It operates at the level of corporate management and so on because of this work-life balance so that employees are driven to work more and more and the technologies have increased the intensity of work and yet, you know, there is no sense of solidarity because the trade unions are gone, communitarian life of employees are gone. Entire towns have been disestablished. So all those other social factors which gave people some kind of social identity, solidarity and so on is taken away. So the corporations need to step in and, and, find, and do something about it. So instead of returning their communitarian lives, they take over even their most personal lives by making Uh, you know, uh, life, work-life balance, a corporate goal and creating an industry, coaching industry around it.
0: Has capital been interested in rights before there were human rights? So you said human rights were sort of came around post-World War II and sort of proliferated as transnational capitalism sort of grew globally. Before World War II, the idea of rights were they also connected to capitalism in any way
1: absolutely i said that the prefix human was added to rights after world war ii right Uh, and before world war ii say in the 17th and 18th centuries rights did not have the prefix human when people talked about rights it included property rights, as well as human rights, yeah. And rights are absolutely instrumental in establishing capitalist societies. Now, if we look at pre-capitalist societies, pre-capitalist societies were land-based societies. Land was the central organizing principle for the social order. And uh, as land-based societies, People and nature were united. You know, this does not mean that there was no exploitation or whatever. I mean, serfs were exploited, etc. But their uh, connection to nature was, if they were, their lives were embedded in nature. They were not disconnected from nature. What capitalism, in contrast, is a commodity-based uh, system so it's commodity producing system and that means that everything in capitalism needs to be commodified bought and sold exchanged yeah and so on and one of the first commodifications we see is commodification of land so capitalism is established by commodifying land and when land becomes private property and land becomes alienable, that means people can buy and sell it, which could not, was not possible in the feudal system, then people are displaced from land because to get clear title, you have to buy and sell land without the people. And when people are displaced from land, you have labor, a free labor market. So you have two kinds of markets. One is the land market and the labor market. And these two are absolutely foundational for capitalism and commodity production and a system based on commodity production. Now, rights are the means that actually reorganize society. They reorganize our relationships to nature, our relationships to each other, the capitalist and the worker, uh, our relationship to land and forests and water and so on and our relationships to each other in society on the basis of rights. So capitalism kind of transforms, you know, property, a land, which is a social relationship yeah, between ourselves and nature into a thing, a commodity. And it transforms labor, which is an inherent property of being human. We have always worked and we can only live by working, and that labor is transformed into another kind of commodity. And I think and rights are the ones that establish this system. And la- rights establish in right bearing individuals, and each right bearing individual is right bearing because they have something to give and something that they need and can receive. And this is basically the uh, uh basis of capitalist system. And capitalism works on contracts, because to produce commodities, to exchange commodities, individuals need to be able to arrive at contractual relations. And all contracts presuppose the existence of at least two right-bearing parties. And that is the relationship between commodity production, contracts as social relationships, and rights as the concepts or the or the basic idea that establishes right bearing individuals that can enter into contractual relations, so there is an absolutely inalienable intrinsic relationship between rights and capitalism
0: on on this show i've talking I've spoken with a lot of people who do research on education privatization, the ways in which education has become commodified in so many different parts around the world. Do you think rights and human rights, since since education is a human right, as you said earlier, have, have rights played or furthered the commodification of education, in your opinion? It
1: has, because, look, education is has always, historically, has always been uh, central to social reproduction. Because what education does is reproduces the social order, it trains the next generation to take over the reins. This is not new. But what capitalism does is turns it into an education, and education becomes an investment. And as an investment, it becomes... Uh, meaningful only if it can produce returns. So education then loses its meaning as a way of understanding the social order and how we can continue our social life. It becomes an individual personal investment. And with uh, with a right to education, we also see the uh, education itself becoming an industry in, in so many different ways. Yeah, If you look at the ma- internal management of educational systems, they are very much run like corporations. If you look at the disparities, they mirror the larger capitalist societies. You know, those with uh, education, uh, and those without education, those who use it to make Capitalism more profitable are the ones that go very high up, and those who use their education for social justice or to improve things in the world, you will find that they are not making much money out of their investment. But also the methods used. For example, we have these huge organizations, educational companies, you know, who produce databases, who produce various kinds of technologies. They are making money out of it. Let me give you a very simple example. Now, I work for a university. The university pays me a salary. But when I write something, I can't give it to people free of charge to read. And because there are journals, academic journals, there are publishers, and they all say uh, claim that they have a right to make money out of it, even though they have not spent anything on you know, my, my work. So we it's a strange situation. We are in a position because I don't need the money because the university is paying me a salary and the education companies are not doing anything. They are only charging readers exorbitant sums of money, $35, $40 to uh, read an article. For for what? For doing nothing. Because the technologies now are so, are so freely available that I can let my anybody who wants it read my articles, but I'm not allowed to do that.
0: And this comes back to the issue of having rights to commodify, in a sense, articles and books, very essential features of higher education.
1: Yes is absolutely central to that because education is about passing on our knowledge to others and learning from others. So, but why do we need to pass on knowledge to others? And why do we need to learn from others as educators? Presumably, there is something called a social good. Presumably, there is something called a future generation, and we want the societies and the world to continue, and that is why this exchange of knowledge, both accumulated knowledge from the past and new knowledge, is necessary for to solve problems, to iron out difficulties, and to see how we can continue human life in the future. But this purpose is taken away when education becomes a commodity, you see, human life gets a backseat. Social well-being gets a backseat and education becomes a product which has to be sold in the market. And increasingly, research is linked to uh, corporations, linked to uh, government social policy, to international organizations and all of that, where it is designed to improve their productivity But as social beings, we need a critique of society, constantly reviewing our practices, evaluating our practices, uh, uh, and and trying to make improvements in our social life for society to continue. But what education as a commodity does is exactly the opposite.
0: Seeing education as a social good is is, um, something that organizations like Education International would most likely advocate for, Education International being the global federation of teacher unions around the world. Um, But Education International also supports the, the human right to education. They sort of see that as one of the justifications for what they do. And so the question I guess I have is, to create education as a social good, Can human rights help in that cause, or is it actually just sort of undermining it because human rights have become sort of the um, helping the political agenda of the global capitalist class?
1: That's a good question, Will, because uh, I think one of the things I do in this book is to examine what the disjuncture between property rights and human rights does, yeah? Because that's where we started this conversation. Uh, In in the 17th and 18th centuries, rights included property rights as well as human rights. And in fact, uh, uh, rights, property rights and labor rights was very closely tied. And the justification for property rights was really about labor theories. You know, John Locke, for example, he says, he asks, uh, how can we call a piece of land mine? And he says, because I labor on it and therefore add value to it. So anything that we add value to through our work becomes property, my private property. And so labor and property rights, or social rights and property rights were entwined in the traditional uh, thinking or what we call enlightenment thinking, the European Enlightenment. But after World War II, we find that the property rights are disassociated with human rights. And I think this is the problem uh, uh, that we have today and your question is really an example of this disassociation because when people think about human rights they think about oh children need to go to school or you know people m- need must have the right to go to a university or whatever but they forget why the education industry wants human rights to education See? And when we start examining that, we see the property relations and education as a property, intellectual property has is a post-World War, you know, it has really expanded as a transnational right. We see uh, uh, the industry itself, we see copyrights and all these kind of rights to my thoughts which has become a form of property. Because ultimately, that's what it is. My thinking has become somebody's property. And we don't make the connection between these two things. We are, when then organizations like this union that you referred to, Education International, when they demand human rights, they are only thinking about what we want from rights. But what I say is, you should also question why they want rights. Why does the education industry want rights? Why why do research foundations want rights? And why do corporations want intellectual property rights? And so on. And when we start to ask why they want rights, then we start to see the connection between property rights and human rights. And this is what has been severed in the last 70 years and that is why people continue to imagine that uh, if they demand human rights that somehow they can achieve it but it only becomes an aspirational statement when it is not linked to the realities and how rights actually operate in the world and that's that's the crucial uh, point
0: I'd like to ask a personal question about how you navigate the space of academic publishing because you you just said that your thoughts become property and we've been talking a little bit today about the academic publishing industry and how it's it's very it's commodifying an essential part of higher education books articles and you just put out a book um and I think it's published by Pluto Press That's right. How do you navigate signing contracts with publishers and knowing that your thoughts and your hard work is literally going to be the, the property of some other entity.
1: It's a difficult to navigate this, especially at an individual level. Because, and this is where the reality that we are social beings, we live in a social uh, setting, and we can only change the world collectively becomes so important. Because at an individual level, what is my option? Either I publish or I don't publish. And even there, there is a lot of gatekeeping that happens. I mean, Pluto is amazing. It's one of the few, uh, you know, radical uh, book publishers around, uh, left really, remaining. But generally, if you look at the other big publishing names, yeah, they decide what, you, sh- what, uh, you know, they will publish and they will not publish. And that will depend on the markets, that will depend on their judgment of your ideas. Say I have an amazing idea, which is a radical idea, or I write a a piece of literary work, which is completely, uh, you know, new genre, for example, yeah. If the publishing industry does not come on board and some publisher does not agree to publish my work, I cannot communicate with the world, yeah, And in order to communicate with the world, then I'm under pressure to tailor my thoughts, to tailor my thinking and my uh, style and, you know, genre to whatever is marketable. And that makes uh, the gatekeeping a hugely problematic thing for our rights to uh, intellectual freedom, you know, rights to knowledge, to conscience, all of those things. And I think with journals it's even worse because with journals there are gatekeeping gatekeepers who will decide you know you have not cited x or y or z and therefore your article is unpublishable or your right your ideas are too radical therefore they will not be publishable and it is through this kind of gatekeeping that we are unable to produce knowledge that addresses the real problems of the real world and the people you know, who are really uh, in need of solutions.
0: So in your book, you argue that the 21st century needs a new counter-social philosophy. What, what does that look like in your opinion?
1: You see, all problems of the modern world are in one way or another related to three types of questions. Uh, that we have questions about human relations to nature, questions about human relations to each other and questions about our inner lives. You can call it uh, emotional life, psychological life, spiritual life, whatever you want to call it. Now, in ancient times, philosophy helped us to understand these relationships. It helped us to understand our place in the world, our purpose in life, the meaning of life and our actions. What are the long-term effects of what we do or don't do? Capitalism dismissed these questions as irrelevant. It undermined philosophy. The European Enlightenment thinkers, for example, separated philosophy from science. As philosophy was a useless part of knowledge and science became the useful part of knowledge. And then a series of separations followed the separation of natural sciences from social sciences, separation of law from ethics, separation of society or sociology from law, and so on and so forth, and I could expand it. Some European Enlightenment thinkers like Leibniz, for example, fantasized about transforming all knowledge into an ideal kind of mathematical formula. Now today, with computing, We see this fantasy being realized because all computing is ultimately about mathematics. It's about combinations of zeros and ones. I may be oversimplifying it here, but that's what it is. Everything can be reduced to numbers. Happiness can be measured. Uh, Intergenerational equity is reduced to the technical definition of 30 years and so on. Now, as a result of this, We no longer have any way of knowing our place in the world. Why are we here? What what do we want to do? And we have no way of understanding the world around us. Therefore, I say we need to return to these big questions about human life. These are not useless kind of uh, uh, knowledge because they don't produce, uh, you know, marketable value or they don't produce returns on investments. We still need to understand how to make sense of our actions and therefore I say we need to find a ways of restoring the three relationships that I talked about. Relationships between nature and society, between people and uh, between people and between ethics and aesthetics and only a counter-philosophy that puts these questions at the center of our knowledge production, can help us get a, get out of this terrible mess that we are in.
0: Well, Rada D'Souza, thank you so much for joining Fresh Head. It really was a pleasure to talk. And a lot of thoughts and more questions are coming in my mind right now. And, and I hope audience members will just have so much to think about um, going forward.
1: Thank you so much, Will. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: Rata D'Souza teaches law at the University of Westminster, London. Her newest book is What's Wrong with Rights, published by Pluto Press earlier this year. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com/support. Freshed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zhong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Freshed's social media coordinator. and original music for Freshed was created by Digital Prime. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.